Hello and welcome as you join us on your Bible teaching programme, Search for Truth. We have, as usual, our teacher, Brian Johnston, and it's great to have you with us, of course. This is Brian's sixth study in this series, and again he's looking into more New Testament scriptures in order to enrich our relationship with Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at our relationship from the aspect of how Christ is the head of his church, the, the church of the body, that is. That's all believers in Christ who put their trust in him as their saviour at any time in the past. This time we consider some fundamental conditions which must be fulfilled before we can have any likelihood of a harmonious relationship within the church, the body. Uh, today's title for the talk is Our Relationship with Jesus Christ from the Standpoint of Those Who Are Added Alongside Him. Here's Brian to tell us more. Thanks, John. What guidance can we find to help us have confidence that our interpretation of a particular Bible text is the correct one? For there can only be one, despite the modern or postmodern ideas. One guide that has helped generations of Bible students is to compare Scripture with Scripture. Peter refers his readers to the writings of Paul. The Lord asked, what does the law say, before illuminating his teaching from it? Overall, it's a recognised safeguard against isolating a text, and it ensures that we develop main lines of Bible truth with wide-ranging support from many texts, and in that way we establish a reassuring, consistent, bigger Bible picture, which acts like a roadmap to guide us. There are many differences between the service of God's people in Old and New Testaments, but there's a basic consistency that we can readily discern in terms of the underlying principles. These principles would apply to God taking a people for himself in any age. We find three conditions that stand the test of time. Three necessary features of a people aspiring to be God's people. Israel had first to be redeemed out of Egypt's slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb. Secondly, they went through the waters of the Red Sea, retrospectively described in the New Testament as being their baptism, and with specific mention of the covering cloud as well as the walls of water on either side, we have a realistic portrayal then of baptism by immersion. Thirdly, God led them by the hand of Moses to Mount Sinai, where they received the two tables of stone summarising the law of Moses, which was of course God-given. God's redeemed, baptised people must commit to the obeying the teaching of his word that's relative to their time. For Israel, it was Moses' law. For New Testament disciples, it's the apostles' teaching. Summarising then, we expect, when we turn to the New Testament, that we should find the key steps of sinners being saved or redeemed by the blood of God's Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, then submission to believers' baptism by immersion in water as an identifying rite, before living in faithful obedience to the Lord's teaching through his apostles as detailed in the New Testament. These three steps were understood among Peter's readership, for he was writing to God's New Testament people spread over five Roman provinces, which he names at the start of his letter. Later, 
he makes it clear that the various local church fellowships involved were connected by the fact that each of them had elders who were in fellowship with each other. A fairly substantial part of the first century Christian community is being addressed in Peter's letters, and that shows that this was typical, this unity was typical of the whole community, soon stretching into Europe some 20 years after the cross. But I want to come to a delightful appeal given by the Apostle Peter in his second chapter. Beginning at the top of the chapter we read, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a wonderful reference to our Lord Jesus, of course, and our relationship with him. But let's begin in thinking about what we've read by saying that it has previously been well said that either the book, referring to the Bible, either the book will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from the book. I think it may have been John Bunyan who said that. The Apostle Peter removes the choice from us here. He definitely urges us not to let sin keep us from the Bible by telling us to first of all put away all malice and deceit. And when we do that, we'll find a rekindled desire within us for God and specifically for his word. We'll be like a newly born baby longing for milk. A healthy baby will be a hungry baby. And a healthy child of God will also be one who hungers and thirsts for the word of righteousness. If that sounds logical, well, it's because it is. The corresponding Greek word is found here in 1 Peter 2 and 2, as well as in Romans 12 and 1. It seems we're talking here about what nourishes our mind, and that's the Word of God. As Christians, we need to have our minds nourished and renewed by the Word, for only this can adjust our perceptions, and it leads to us living transformed lives to God's glory. This brings us to personal growth in our Christian life. Notice that it's been described here as growing with respect to our completed salvation from sin's penalty. It's impossible to be any more saved than we already are by God's grace, as received through faith. But there are things that accompany salvation, things we arrive at by spiritual growth. What we've already experienced should leave us wanting more, and Peter was building confidently on the basis that those to whom he was writing had tasted the Lord's graciousness, and so they were wanting more. It's terrific to know that we serve a risen Saviour who now lives above at God's side. But observe carefully exactly how he's described here. He's said to be the living stone. That's a very thought-provoking metaphor, wouldn't you say? We're more used to imagery that sees the Lord God as a mighty rock. But here he's said to be a stone. And what's more, it immediately becomes clear that this stone is within a structure, for other stones are mentioned. And this is where it all becomes so preciously relevant. 
I've used the word precious because that's how Peter sees it. And the reason why it's relevant is because we are those living stones. The metaphor is being extended at this point to apply to all who, like those first century believers, have new life in Jesus. As I write this, I've just returned from driving through the suburbs of a major city in central eastern Africa. Alongside the road, there appeared to be random piles of stones. I drew the attention of my companions to them, for I intended to use them to illustrate Peter's precise point here. The stones Peter talks about in chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5 are not in a haphazard pile, but they've been added to the living stone who is the Lord. We all know that a random pile of stones don't make a house that someone can live in, at least not until they're built together following an architect's building plan. The living stone is the Lord, remember, and because he's Lord, the plan has got to be his, and he's communicated it through his apostles, including Peter, who's written this. This fits with our opening comments. God calls us as individuals through the gospel. As an individual, we place our faith in Jesus as Saviour. As an individual, we submit to being baptised. And that brings us to the point of becoming associated with others in serving God to be his worshippers. Peter talks about coming to the living stone. This is consistently the language God uses of his people's approach to him in worship. He describes worship by his people as their coming to him or drawing near to him. This was easy to visualise when God's house in Old Testament times was a physical structure, a tent in the desert or a temple in Jerusalem. Israel encamped around and at set times approached God's house in their worship. God's people and house were inseparable or meant to be. But it's an even closer relationship in the case of the New Testament people of God that Peter's writing about. The stones are living. The people are the house, no longer a material building, but a spiritual one. Living stones added together to him, forming a spiritual house for God. This comes with the integral condition that we maintain the vision of approaching God in worship even as we offer up spiritual sacrifices made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, our Lord Jesus stands like Aaron of old, our great high priest. And what's more, believers following the plan form the priesthood whom he brings in before his Father above. Peter, in verse 6, goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 28 about whoever believes in him not being disappointed. The same verse is applied twice in Romans chapters 9 and 10. There, it's used to give assurance of salvation by faith, not works. Here it's applied once more, but beyond salvation this time, to the faith that sees us serving and worshipping in God's house, all the time looking to the exalted cornerstone of God's house as we draw near and worship. When we see Christ in this role, as God sees him, as precious... And when we realise we're viewed by God as he views Christ, also as precious, how could we possibly be disappointed? We're said to be as near and dear as he is. First, Christ is the precious cornerstone, and then to us who believe is the same precious value. Correctly, we speak of imputed righteousness 
since our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. But here, does it not seem indicated that we are taught to speak of imputed preciousness? We may be believers, but there's something precious beyond salvation. How do we reach it? By putting away sin, by thirsting for the Lord and for his word, by tasting the experience of the Lord's kindness, and by coming or drawing near in worship, and all in God's way. I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and if it's raised any comments or questions for Brian you can contact him using the addresses I'll give you in just a moment. There's also a transcript book for all the talks in this series and it's available free to you on request by asking for the title Our Relationship with Jesus Christ. You can order the book by email or by post and here's the address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And you might also be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript books have been turned into ebooks and are available at amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle hyphen ebooks. You just type search for truth series into the search box and there you should find them. Well, time's almost gone, but once again, many thanks for the privilege of your company today. And I'd be delighted if you could join us again next week when Brian will be looking at how the Bible describes us or what it means to us to being subject to his government in church life. Until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So bye for now and may God richly bless you. Amen.